Well, when we talk about Jesus today, <clears throat> what I find, I think, is that we usually talk about the benefits that we experience as his followers, and there are many. Uh, and as we should, we should talk about that. There are many blessings in this life when you follow Jesus Christ. We often talk about how he helps us to overcome hardship, to walk in victory over our struggles, to uh, experience healing in our relationships, and how he gives us strength and courage and peace when we need that help the most. And all of that is true, and all of that is good. But it is also true that at the end of the day, all of Jesus' ministry on earth, all of his work, his effort, his teaching, his leading, his healing, his miracles, his discipleship, it all culminated into one great act. Everything that he did and all that he was about, all of it, pointed to the cross. And so because his focus and, and really the apex of his ministry was his sacrifice at the cross, when we talk about Jesus, ultimately that too should be our focus, the cross. Because although it is good to talk about the myriad of other aspects of Christ and his work, it all amounts to nothing more than good, moral, uplifting teachings without the cross. And so just as his life and his teaching and his ministry all pointed to the cross, so should our lives and our teaching and our ministry all point to the cross, to the ransom that he paid for each of us in that great act. And so today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, we're going to pause our sermon series in John uh, for this week and next and talk about the ransom that he paid on the cross this morning. And of course, we'll talk about the resurrection next Sunday. And we recognize uh, Palm Sunday, also known to many as Passion Sunday, along with the vast majority of the church worldwide today. Uh, for much of the liturgical church, this is the final week of Lent, which is a 40-day period of preparation and fasting leading to Easter and includes this week before Easter, which uh, they refer to as Holy Week, signifying Christ's journey to the cross. And so even the liturgical traditions, which can seem like legalistic traditions to those who don't uh, understand them, ultimately they point to the cross as well. And this day, Palm Sunday, <clears throat> specifically is a day to commemorate and celebrate the triumphal entry, the day that Christ entered Jerusalem as king, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, it's described in Matthew 21, 7, on his way to the cross. And so likewise, Palm Sunday ultimately points us to the cross. It's referred to as Palm Sunday, by the way, because the crowds cut down palm branches from the trees and they threw them down on the road before Jesus and they waved them in the air as he rode in because palm branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory in their culture. They're on their coins and all over, signs of palm branches all over their culture. And along with the palm branches, Matthew tells us in verse 8 that they spread their cloaks out on the road, which was a sign of submission to the Messiah. And then finally in verse 9, we see that the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So he's literally surrounded by crowds of people shouting Hosanna, which is an Aramaic word. It means uh, save us or rescue us. In the Hebrew, it means oh save. And they were doing that because at the time, 
the Jews expected an earthly king to come and save them from the Roman occupation. They believed that Jesus was going to show up as the Messiah and take care of their Roman problem. But as we walk through the story this morning, it becomes evident that the Jews were full of errant expectations for Jesus because as the events from the the triumphal entry uh, on unfold, or really even before that, we find that Jesus did not meet their expectations. In fact, he made a, a complete mess of their expectations because they were focused on victory over Rome through military conquest, while Jesus was focused on victory over death through the cross. Right? Jesus didn't come to pay revenge on our enemies by leading a military coup. He came to pay a ransom for our souls by his sacrifice on the cross. And so it's really important that we understand this aspect of Christ's work on our behalf. It's important that we understand the ransom that was paid and what specifically it was paid to satisfy because none of our traditions... None of our beliefs, none of our theology or doctrine or practices mean anything. They don't mean anything without the ransom that he paid for us at the cross. So we're going to talk about the ransom today. And my hope is that we will adjust our thinking and our understanding about this subject, if need be, so that we can not only see clearly our own absolute need for Christ, apart from any effort on our own in overcoming sin, but also that we will be able to communicate to those who do not think that they need a Savior precisely why they do, which will become clear as we go through this today. And here's a hint. The ransom that Jesus paid for us on the cross is not only misunderstood by many, but it is also about far more than simply covering our sins. Okay, so first of all, let's turn to Luke 9. And we'll start at verse 51, and normally, you know, if you attend here regularly, we, we work through books of the Bible verse by verse. We're going to jump over some scripture today because we're covering a lot of ground. So we're going to start out here at verse 51 of Luke 9 and read this passage together. Just a little backstory. Up to this point, Jesus has been ministering to people in different areas. He's been teaching those who follow him. He's been making disciples. He's been healing people and performing all manner of miracles, which were not only great works in and of themselves, but they also served to validate his own claims of divinity. And so through all of this natural and supernatural activity, Jesus is building a strong case to those who will listen that he is, in fact, who he says he is. Namely, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the, the Christ that they've all been waiting for. But here in Luke 9, something changes. There is a decidedly notable shift in his own focus as the appointed time of his great act of redemption is drawing near. Let's read it together. Luke 9, 51 through 56. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I love these guys. <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. So Jesus knew that it was nearly time for him to return to the Father. The Greek word for taken up in this verse is analepsis. It's, it's always 
directly refers to Christ's ascension anytime it's used in Scripture. So Jesus, knowing that it was almost time for him to be taken up to heaven, turns his gaze now to Jerusalem because of the ransom that had to be paid there before he could return to the Father. And so this verse now sets the theme for the bulk of the rest of the gospel from this moment on as Jesus is now on a journey to the cross. And you can almost sense the shift in gravity and urgency from this point on uh, as you continue to, if you just keep reading and as Jesus continues to direct his disciples, there's a sense of urgency. In fact, the directed focus toward Jerusalem that is so ardent now in Jesus that this, it's so obvious to all that the Samaritans, it says, would not receive him in their village. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The Samaritans and the Jews passionately hated each other. It was kind of like Clemson and Carolina. But that was a joke. But they had like swords and knives, right? These guys hated each other's guts. And so once the Samaritans realized that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, they rejected him. Why? Because they rejected Jerusalem. You see, that was the center of worship for the Jews, but not for the Samaritan, and they wouldn't accept that. So from here on out, Jesus continues his daily ministry, but with a directed focus on the cross, which was always the case, but now with this increased uh, sense of urgency. And the result, just as it was with the Samaritans, was that many people didn't understand or were not willing to accept the all-or-nothing nature of his call, which, of course, includes taking up our own cross dying to ourselves and following him. As he said it as much in, in Luke 9, 23 and 24, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and following me and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And I just want to say a really quick side note on this. If you read Paul's own writing about everything that he'd lost for the sake of Christ. He rarely talks about the actual act of being martyred, if at all. What he talks about is everything that he gave up for Jesus while he was alive and well and thriving. And I think today that the dying to ourselves, we, we think of this as the first century martyrs and all of the, the difficult persecution they went through. I think it's much harder for us today when we talk about dying for ourselves to simply give up our own will and our own desires and our own passions for His. I think that's what dying to ourselves means more than anything for us today because it's the thing that we struggle with the most. That's just a little free sermon on the side. Okay. So Jesus is calling these people to follow Him, to take up the cross, die to themselves, and follow Him. That, that call is the same today as it was then. We either accept all of Him and all of the implications of that calling to him, or we have no part in him at all. There is no middle ground with Jesus because he wants all of us. And he demonstrates that by the all or nothing nature of the ransom that he paid for us. So he's not asking anyone to do anything any different than what he's doing. He's giving it all up. And so let's keep reading and see how people are responding to him uh, now that there is this greater sense of urgency just before his earthly ministry comes to a close. Verses 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. 
But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, the people were interested in Jesus, but they wanted him on their terms, not his. They wanted to come to him when it was comfortable for them to do so, or once they accomplished some other things that were important to them first. Many of them wanted to keep one foot firmly planted in the world and the cares of this world, and then give the other part of themselves to Jesus, which is really the same attitude that we see very often today. There's a lot of interest in Jesus in our culture. There are new television programs about him almost every year. In fact, I was in Barnes & Noble uh, this week, and I saw the cover of National Geographic at the checkout line with a cover story about Jesus. It's not hard to find interest in our society about Jesus, but what you will often find along with that are people who want him to give them what they desire rather than what they actually need. They want Jesus on their own terms, not his. <clears throat> and the problem with that is he's the one that paid the ransom for us. It wasn't the other way around. And I personally believe that a significant part of that misunderstanding is the fact that most people who are without Christ don't understand why they need Him, first of all. They don't understand the ransom that He paid. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that the modern church in the West largely has not done a very effective job at explaining it to them. Not in the last few decades, anyway. We, we promote the benefits of Jesus but not the need for Jesus. Which, by the way, is not splitting hairs. This is foundational to the most basic understanding of Christ's work on the cross, which means this is foundational to everything that we say we believe. When we focus on telling people all of the benefits of following Christ, many of those same people will tell you that they already have those things in their lives. When we make his benefits the most compelling reason for following him, when we talk about having peace and joy and love and hope and security and fulfillment to people who are without Christ in their lives, those people will often tell you, especially in this country today, that they already have those things. They already have happiness and they're already joyful. They're already at peace. They're surrounded by people who love them. They're hopeful, secure, and fulfilled. And although we as followers of Christ may very well experience all of those benefits at a different and deeper level, it's a hard sell to those who are already happy with their lives. Okay, focusing primarily on the peripheral benefits of Jesus as the most compelling reason for following Him will rarely compel someone who's happy with the way their life is already to consider Christ. And I've experienced that many times firsthand, which again is why it's so important that we fully grasp the ultimate outcome and the ultimate purpose and reason of the ransom that he paid. Are there benefits? Of course there are. Should we talk about them? Yes, absolutely we should. Psalm 103.2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Of course we talk about those, but those particular benefits are not the most compelling or even the most important aspect of Christ's work on the cross. Okay, so let's move forward then. We're going to skip to Luke chapter 19. 
as Jesus and his disciples are making their way toward Jerusalem. And the picture begins uh, to become a bit clearer. And so for our remaining time this morning, we're going to be looking at three important aspects of the work of Christ on the cross. We'll start out with Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, you don't get to go to the local car dealership and try this yourself. You can't just get in a new car and tell them the Lord has need of it and drive away. But it worked for them. Okay, so it says, As he rode along, verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they'd seen. This is what we talked about earlier, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Okay, and then right after this, Jesus, after weeping over Jerusalem, which we'll look at in a moment, he enters the temple and he begins to clean house. He flips over the tables and begins to drive them out of the temple. The people truly didn't understand why they even needed Jesus. They had their own ideas about that. There were all sorts of expectations about him, and there always have been. But Jesus came to pay a ransom, and the ransom defied expectations. The ransom defied their expectations. They expected Jesus to do something entirely different than what he actually did. They expected a king in the line and tradition of David to come in on a war horse, and what they got instead was a man in peasant's clothing, accompanied by common people and riding on a young donkey of peace, which fulfilled the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, by the way, 500 years earlier, which said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter in Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, exactly as it was prophesied. They expected validation as God's chosen people. What they got instead was driven out of the temple for their sin. They expected religious pretension and arrogance, and what they got instead was a man willing to give himself up for the very people who were mocking him, beating him, cursing him, and ultimately killing him. They expected to prosper physically and materially under his leadership. What they got instead was a suffering servant who sacrificed his own life. They expected revenge on the Romans for their oppressive occupation and years of offenses against the Jews. And what they got instead was a ransom paid in blood for their own offenses against God. You see, Jesus was everything that they needed and they missed it. Because he didn't submit to their will, their desires, and their plans. On the contrary, he required them to submit to his will, his desires, his plans. Everything that we need today 
has been provided for by God. It may not come according to our will or our desires or our plans, but everything that we need from God has been provided for us by Jesus' work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection and ascension into heaven. But when we view him solely on the basis of someone who has the, the ability to give us anything that we want, we completely miss the reason that he came and did what he did. And as we keep reading... Just listen to what he says right before he rides into Jerusalem. Okay, let's read verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Isn't it interesting that he's riding down the Mount of Olives as the masses praised him and celebrated his entrance. Everyone is full of jubilation, waving palm branches and throwing down their cloaks before him. In fact, their praise and celebration was at such a fevered pitch that the religious leaders rebuked them. For many of these people, this was the happiest day of their lives as they imagined Jesus sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. And as they celebrated over what they saw, Jesus wept over what he saw. As he, he came over the shoulder of the Mount of Olives and caught that first glimpse of Jerusalem, the southeastern corner of the city of David, his heart broke for the people because they didn't understand why he came or what he came to do. They imagined him sitting on a throne, not hanging on a cross. And I think there are many people who truly don't understand today what he came to do any more than these people did in the story we're reading. The ransom defies expectations. It always has. Let's pick up the story now at chapter 23. And we'll read uh, verses 26 through 31. This is as Jesus is being led now to his death. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, this is amazing. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is a reference by Jesus to the ultimate reason for the cross, the true purpose of the ransom that he paid with his blood. And so we're going to come back to this in a moment, but let's keep reading uh, first. Verses 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. What a poignant picture of the world today when confronted with the Christ. Jesus there between two men, one who recognizes his need for a Savior and the other who is only interested in Jesus if he can have him on his own terms. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. By the phrase who were hanged in the Greek um, is the word krema numi. It's synonymous with crucifixion. So they're all being crucified. And so one of the men being crucified along with Jesus rails at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now we know now that Jesus was there indeed to save people and yet he wasn't going to do it in the manner that was expected. And so the man rejects Jesus. It's such a relevant picture of those down through the ages, including today, who were only interested in a Jesus who will do things according to their own will. And yet the other man being crucified responds with this. Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, now we'll come back. This man got it. Remember what he says. Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same condemnation, we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a picture of those who take Jesus as he is, a Savior who hung on a cross that he did not deserve, but submitted to willingly to save all who would come to him, no matter how undeserving we are. This man who was full of sin by his own admission simply came to Jesus after all of the crimes and all of the horrible things that he'd done in those final moments. He simply came to Jesus just as he was. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so Jesus makes good on that promise. He said to the second criminal, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus made good on his word and he's been making good on it ever since because no matter how full of sin we may be, the ransom overcame sin. In the ancient world, a ransom was paid in order to secure the release of a captive. A, a, a price could be paid, for instance, to buy a slave's freedom. And according to Jesus in John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So without Christ, we're all slaves to sin. We're imprisoned by our own sin. Without Christ, we are all, every one of us, living under a death sentence. We are condemned to eternal death because of our sin. And then along comes Jesus and pays a ransom that overcomes that sin. And all that we need do is believe in Him and what He's done for us. Put our faith in Him, which, which by the way, isn't as hard to do 
as some people think or make it out to be. Like it's this giant leap to believe in some kind of ancient myth. Even from the standpoint of evidence, there are so many people who believe things in history that we don't have a shred of the amount of evidence to support as we do uh, the claims of Jesus Christ. And yet people readily believe. They never found a dead body after it came up missing at the tomb. So the authorities pay off the guards to claim that his body had been stolen. You can read about that in Matthew 28. We have numerous written, corroborating, historical records of Jesus' life from followers and non-followers of his, secular historians from the first century, records of his death and resurrection being publicly verified, the truth about Jesus Christ actually being who he said he was has been historically, circumstantially, and certainly personally validated in the lives of millions of people over the centuries. What other story or figure can come close to making those claims, including all of those who were there with him personally as he lived and walked on this earth, attested to the same thing? And that isn't just hearsay or oral tradition, okay? The the first part of 1 Corinthians 15 is an early creed for the Christian faith. And the significance of that creed is that for centuries, scholars believe that the way that we came into our current story of the resurrection, there's a great video with Vince Vitale and um, Ravi Zacharias about this. <clears throat> they said the way that we came into our current uh, resurrection story was that someone who knew the original story told it to someone else who told it to someone else, who told it to someone else, and on down the line it went until we ended up with this resurrection myth that was written down long after whatever actually occurred occurred in relationship to Jesus' body. And so we, we have this myth today, uh, whether you believe it or not, a, a story today, and that's how it was delivered. That's how it came to be. And scholars b believed that for centuries. If you've ever played the game where you sit in a circle and someone whispers something into the person's ear next to them and then that person whispers the same thing next to them and on it goes all the way around the circle until you come full circle and the last person then says out loud what they heard and it's always very different from the original message. If you've ever played that game, this was sort of like that to scholars for a long, long time. But just within the last two decades... Because of modern science and archaeology, there has now become widespread agreement, even among the most atheistic scholars that do not believe in the Bible, even those scholars today, it's widespread agreement that 1 Corinthians 15 can be reliably dated to immediately after Jesus' death, burial, and the claims of his resurrection. So that passage, and this is one little tiny thing we're talking about here, one example. That passage, that creed, is not the product of an account of Jesus' resurrection being orderly handed down and changed over years and years and years until it became this myth and then was later recorded as scripture. On the contrary, 1 Corinthians 15 is a written record of events immediately after they happened. Now, let's just read uh, verses 3 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. (laughs) There's substantial amounts of evidence supporting the validity of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Bible. And this is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to that evidence. It is not hard if you take the time and, and do the work and, and look at the research to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what his followers claimed that he did and the resulting historical records of that work. The ransom that he paid for each of us. Why in the world anyone would reject that free offer to come to him once they understand who he is and what he did is completely beyond me. And yet people reject him every single day. As we've already seen that first of all much of that is because he doesn't line up with people's expectations of him. They don't understand the ransom that he paid and the debt that we cannot overcome without that ransom. Secondly, they don't see their own sin as a barrier to happiness or fulfillment. So in turn, they don't see their need for Christ and the ransom that he paid to overcome that sin. All right, there are a lot of people who believe that they are essentially good people. And morally, there are a lot of good people in this world who don't follow Jesus Christ. There are fine people morally. So they don't see themselves as having a sin problem. And so the fact that Jesus' ransom overcame sin is irrelevant to them. So should we point people to the benefits of following Christ? Yes, we should. Should we talk about the ransom that overcomes sin without a doubt? Yes, we should. But there's another component to this ransom that he paid. And it is not only the most important outcome of what Jesus did, but it is probably also the least talked about aspect of that great act in church today. Let's finish this part of our story, verses 44 through 46. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. So there was this curtain in the temple separating the Holy of Holies, the the dwelling place of God's presence, from the other parts of the temple where men dwelt. Because mankind had been separated from God because of our sin. And if you're a believer and a follower of Christ, you've probably heard that many times. You know that. And so when Jesus paid the ransom for our sin, that curtain was torn in two. And the separation that existed between mankind and God was removed. Because that ransom overcame all of our sin in that moment. And so now we can enjoy the many benefits of a relationship with God that we couldn't before. And of course, we talk about all of that often. However, what used to be talked about in church, I think much more than it is today, that we don't talk about a lot now, is what was waiting on the other side of that curtain before it was torn in two. If the required sacrifices were not made, if anyone stepped past that curtain in the wrong manner, into the presence of a holy, perfect, sinless, righteous God. We don't talk about that much today. 
but we should talk about it because this is the one aspect of the ransom that Jesus paid that we cannot provide answers for on our own. People say they already enjoy the many benefits in their lives, so they don't need Christ for that. I get it. People say that they already have good morals. They're morally good people, so they don't need Christ to overcome their sin. I get it. And although we understand as followers of Christ that the benefits are not the same without Him and that being morally good is not good enough without Christ, we know that people will still make those arguments, and they do often, and convince themselves that they have no need of Him. And then we stop there, befuddled about what to do. We need to talk about what was on the other side of that curtain, which is what awaits anyone today who will enter into his presence on that final day without Christ. That is the wrath of a holy God. When two of Aaron's sons tried to enter into the presence of God in the wrong manner, Leviticus 10 tells us that they were immediately consumed by fire and killed. Nobody likes to talk about that. We don't want to talk about God's wrath anymore. The the Puritans sure did. But it was an art form for them. In fact, many preachers throughout the ages have, and we've come to associate most of them with angry hellfire and brimstone, beating their fists on the pulpit and frightening everyone into surrendering their lives to Christ kind of preachers, which many of them actually weren't. But we associate that with them. And today, in large, people won't tolerate that kind of angry preaching. I don't like that kind of preaching. I don't. I don't want somebody to scream and yell at me for an hour about hell. And yet the critical error of the church, in my estimation, is that because we decided we didn't like that kind of delivery of the message, we threw out the delivery and the message. We threw out the baby with the bathwater and instead we limit the message to focus on the benefits of Christ's ransom and the fact that he overcame our sin, which are absolutely true and necessary and need to be communicated, but that's incomplete. Because the other aspect of the plight of humankind that could only be addressed by the ransom that Jesus paid was the wrath of God that we all live under before Christ's work on the cross. Yet the most wonderful truth about that work is the fact that the ransom satisfied God's wrath. But we don't talk about that anymore because, again, we associate that subject with days gone by when angry preachers preached angry messages. But the truth is the ransom that Jesus paid to satisfy God's wrath was the greatest act of love and compassion that has ever been. And we should be telling everyone about that. The dilemma of the wrath of God that exists because of sin, that on our own we can do absolutely nothing about. I don't care how much peace and joy you have in your life. I don't care how morally good you are. We cannot escape the wrath of God without Christ. But with Christ. Because of the unfathomable love that he has for us. That wrath was satisfied. And we are released to enter into his presence unabated by the consequences of our own sin when we place our faith and trust in him. But we don't talk about that anymore. Because the wrath of God is not a uh, popular subject. So we talk about other things. We talk about the enemy and how he comes against us. Look, 
I want to be sure you understand the ransom that Jesus paid was not paid to our enemy. You know that, right? Because it is not the enemy that we need saving from. His fate has already been sealed. Satan has already been defeated. He has no authority to demand any ransom whatsoever. The ransom that Jesus paid not only exceeds people's expectations and does far more than cover our sins, the ransom that Jesus paid satisfies the wrath of God, not Satan's wrath. In Paul's first letter to Thessalonians, the Thessalonians in verses 9 and 10, he says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's referring to God's wrath. In Romans 5, 9, he writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And of course, we just read a few weeks ago in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 36, that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Just a few moments ago, as Jesus was being led to his death, we heard him say, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if God would not spare his own son, the green wood, how much worse for a sinful people, the dry wood? It's a reference to punishment, of course, the judgment that will be meted out by Rome upon them, which will be so bad that they will beg the earth to open and swallow them up as the prophets had warned. This is Jesus speaking about a prophecy in Hosea 10.8. But ultimately, it's a reference to God's wrath to all of those who reject Christ. You see, without Jesus Christ, we're all living under the wrath of God. And the ransom for that wrath cannot, it cannot be paid by any human effort. We can't cover it. We can't get around it. We can't avoid it. We can't hide from it. It is Christ's blood that was shed on the cross only that placates the wrath of God, which is what propitiation means in Romans 3, 21 through 26. And, and we should be talking about this. When we talk about our salvation, because the Lord's holiness demands punishment for sin, and in Jesus, God satisfies his own wrath, which means that he's now propitious, which is to say he's favorable toward his children. And so when we limit the ransom that Jesus paid for us to the benefits that we receive in this life, or to the covering of our sins only, we leave the door open for people to try and achieve their own happiness, to earn their way out of their slavery to sin, because given enough effort, sin is something that most people believe they can overcome. But when you truly begin to grasp the fact that the ransom was paid to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against us, that changes everything. Because there is no coming, overcoming that. Not by our own willpower, not by our own virtue, not by our own ability. If we are to overcome God's wrath without the ransom that Christ paid at the cross, if we're expected to overcome God's wrath without the ransom that Christ paid at the cross, we are all in big, big trouble. 
But Jesus did come. He lived and he died and he rose again to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. Why? Because God loves us that much. He loves us so much that he wasn't willing to write us off. So he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to do what only he could do. To pay a horrific price. To satisfy a debt that we could never pay. That is how much he loves us. This is the message of the cross. It's a message of love. And it's what we should be talking about. A love so deep and so wide that it satisfied God's wrath against us by overcoming our sin, which means we can now live in freedom from slavery to that sin and walk in true peace, joy unspeakable, eternal hope, and in perfect love. All because of the ransom that Jesus paid for us. Would you bow your heads with me?